4. And I was up at public school here just a couple hours ago, and the Bible fell open to this, and one of the kids looked at that for a few seconds, and S-T-A-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-R-S-T-E-
without him first pointing that golden scepter toward her to make sure that you have permission. It's written down and everybody knows that this verse says. It's not something that catches people by surprise. It is made public. They've obviously probably had a lot of executions because of this law. You can't do this. So how is she going to go tell the king, I, I need help. My people are about to be destroyed. She's not being called. What's the scenario? Her uncle is asking, you've got to go in there. You've got to force your... You've got to make a point. Go talk to him. In other words, he's asking a lot. Verse 11, let's see, be put to death except whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. See, there's even a specified period of time that the king wants to be left alone. And she's supposed to go in there. Verse 12, they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Esther sent word back to Mordecai saying, just these circumstances, I can't just go marching in there. Verse 13, Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. So they're going back and forth with communication. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Now there's something implied in that sentence. It is possible for you to escape some consequences while other people don't. See, there are situations in life where you can be removed from danger. And Esther is possibly thinking, at least in Mordecai's mind, maybe she just thinks, if she just sets this one out, stays quiet, maybe she's thinking that she'll miss out on the destruction. And Mordecai wants her to know, Don't make the mistake of thinking in your mind that if you play it safe, you're going to be okay. Now, verse 14 is one of the best verses in the Bible. If you don't have it underlined, I mean, circle something around here. This is what Mordecai says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? If you've ever had a time in your life where you didn't know what you're supposed to be doing, you felt aimless, without purpose, this verse is screaming purpose. Mordecai resorts to this. How do I get her to move? He's not making stuff up and he's not lying. But he is using the power of language. This is a Winston Churchill moment. How do I motivate people just with words? He can't get in front of her. She's in the palace. But through the written language, and this happens throughout history, I'm always drawn to these scenarios. Now I want to take apart this verse 14, phrase by phrase. This is very Interesting to me. Go back to the beginning of the verse. For if, see that he knows she may just sit this out. For if you altogether holdest thy peace at this time. The word peace in that part of the sentence really jumps out at me. Because it's possible to stay in a place of comfort. 
an area of peace. Soldiers understand this. They, they know what combat sounds like, what it looks like, and they know what peace looks like and sounds like. There is a time for resting. There is a time to just sharpen the blade or oil the gun. There's another time where you had better have hands-on weapon, be prepared to fight at any moment. He's saying that you can't just rely on taking it easy and looking for a recliner. Don't think that just because you want to hold on to your peace that you're going to be left alone. He's trying to get her to do what? To get in the arena of the fight. That's a difficult thing. It goes against all human nature. I just returned from the beach. This is a hard sermon to preach. I voluntarily just set aside seven days to do nothing but sit on the beach and watch the waves. That's fun, kind of. And there's times for that. Ecclesiastes talks about a time for this, time for that. But there is a time you've got to get out of the comfort zone and enter the fray. Now, that sounds, as soon as you hear that, you think, we immediately, our human nature does what? We just, we, we resist, we get stiffened up. I, I don't have to do that. I can stay, I've been doing this for 20, 30 years, I, nothing's bad happened. Let me just stay in my peace, my comfort zone. And God may just let you do that. He may just, you're fine. Okay, fine, I pull back. But the rest of this verse is going to point out something. If you do that... If you choose to always stay where it's peaceful, where you can see the perimeter of safety and stay inside of that, then what could happen? The rest of the verse says, Then enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from somebody else. And you think, well, no big deal. So, so it arises from somebody else. I don't need my name in the paper or people to know I did anything. I'm happy to stay away from the fighting. I'll just stay where it's comfortable. But he doesn't stop there. It's going to arise from somewhere else, but thou and thy father's house shall what? Now see, this is the strange part of this verse to me. Why, if she chooses to play it safe and stay away from the king, don't take a chance on getting either beheaded thrust through whatever the punishment was for going into the king when you're not invited. If she plays it safe, he's saying what's going to end up be the end result? In the end, you, and not just you, even your whole family's household, you're dead. That didn't make sense to us. We assume that if we play it safe, well, this is nice here. There's a Pepsi, there's a Coke, I, I've got what I like here. And we assume it'll always be that way. Wrong. Us as American citizens, are we starting to learn a little wake up that we probably can't play it safe anymore? That's not the reason I'm going to this verse, but it kind of rings true in our time today. Somebody's going to have to do something. At a school board meeting, a city council meeting, the state legislature, somebody's going to have to do something. Because this sucker's getting worse by the hour. Thy father's house will be destroyed. And then he says, and who knows, maybe, maybe thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
Somebody paraphrase. What did he say there? Exactly. It may be God's singular, specific design that he works through you. Because he already said deliverance and enlargement, it's going to happen somewhere. And we're going we're to go back to that idea. How, how, why was he so confident? Before we get to that, there's a chance that God wants to work through you. And he wants to, for you to see your own hand stretch out maybe like Aaron's and the rod buds or be Moses and get before Pharaoh and you throw this thing down and your rod that turns into a snake eats the other ones or the burning bush talks back to you or you raise up that rod and the Red Sea parts. See, what we're going to lead to here is what that is getting at, the plan of God. Who knows whether you are coming to the kingdom. Maybe God has you here on planet Earth for this time. And I mentioned Winston Churchill a little bit ago. That guy believed he was put on planet Earth for the purpose, not just to smoke those awful cigars and drink the cognac. He thought, God put me here to deliver this group of people from that raging maniac in Germany. And that's why he had so much confidence. He really thought, God's got me here. I probably don't have to worry about getting hit by a truck crossing the street. Because God's got something for me to do here. I want to go back to this. Mordecai, how, why? Why was this guy so confident that, because that's what it says, that deliverance and enlargement will arise. He's positively confident. It's going to happen. We're going to get saved. But not all of us. I mean, there's a chance if you sit it out, that your, you and your father's house could get crushed in this? See, in the end, and I'm jumping ahead here, but when you choose to jump into God's plan and be used by him, maybe that's the safest place. Maybe the safest place is right in the eye of the storm, in the middle of the fury, in the valley of the shadow of death, except... Somebody's with you there. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How can you fear no evil when it's all around you? A thousand die at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. I mean, it's close. And it didn't say you're walking through the valley of death, the shadow of death. You're close enough, you're in its shadow. You can smell it. You can taste it, you can feel it. You're scared. Except you're not scared. Why? Next verse, for thou art with me. You always reach back in that back pocket. Yeah, yeah, he's still there. I'm not doing this alone. But we haven't answered the question. Why was Mordecai so confident? He knew his God. I like that answer. And that, that's, a, that's, I don't know if I should use the word specific general. He did. He, he knew his God. That's talking about his personal relationship that he knew his God. He himself knew about God. It's a great answer. Anything else? Yeah. What did you say, Jen? I think that's a big part. Let's, th- this guy is specifically speaking about us Jews. God's going to deliver us. Why does he expect 
God to deliver the Jews? We need to ask yourself these questions. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 and get introduced to a guy named Abraham because Abraham had kind of one of these experiences also. What do we call Abraham? What's his nickname? What's the moniker for this fella? He's the father of our faith. And it doesn't say he's the father of our religion. Why do we say Abraham's the father of our faith? He believed. It, it, the, the word belie- he believed something about God. God told him something. But we even talk about Abraham as a great man of faith. And he was. I mean, this guy did some things. Pastor has shared his testimony about how he, reading the Bible, thinking about his own life, and he told the Lord, Lord, I want to have faith like Abraham. Why did pastor, why did it occur to him to pick out Abraham? Why do we all think of Abraham as, man, this guy had faith. He trusted God. How did he get there? Genesis chapter 12, the first record that we have where God talks to him. In verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. Now, you need to stop right there. How big is a nation? God is already talking to him about big things. What if God gave you a dream last night and in the dream... These elections rolled around, you, you won the primary for mayor of Hebron, and you didn't even enter your name on the ballots. People just wrote you in. Just the miracle happened. God touched everybody's heart, and you wake up one day, the next day, and you're the mayor of Hebron. That'd shock you. But Hebron's 1,500 people. God is telling Abram, I'm going to make of you a great What? I mean, that's huge. Those are national borders. They border other nations around the globe. This is big ideas. Next phrase. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. Now, God is talking about making somebody famous here. Make your name great. And it doesn't necessarily just mean well-known like we think of famous. To make your name great is talking about people really respect you. You can be famous and be an idiot. Be thought an idiot. You can do something stupid in front of the whole world and you're famous. but Maybe not for a good reason. People associate your name with a total screw-up. It's not what this is saying. You will be, I'll make your name great. When people think of Abraham, they'll think, there's somebody special. Somebody really special. And thou shalt be a blessing. What does that mean? In our terms, if you were to be a blessing, when I think of that, if I knew somebody was a blessing, I want to be around them. I want to take car rides with them. I want to spend time with them. I just want to be around and watch what happens to them. Maybe some of it sprinkles on me. Remember that woman that begged for the crumbs off the table in Jesus' time? Even if she couldn't get what she wants, she said, Lord, at least the crumbs fall to the children. Just being close to something that's great, 
That's why people flock to presidents and governors. They, they just want to get close to the limelight. If Abraham is going to be a blessing, that means good things are always going to be around him. Next verse, I will bless them that bless thee and curseth him that curseth thee. There's a lot of people that read that language and it it doesn't make a big impression on them because we just think, what does it even mean to bless somebody or to curse somebody? Well, when you're God and God blesses somebody, doors open. Enemies happen to take themselves out. When God curses someone, their water heater explodes every other week. Nothing good happened. You, don't, you, no, you just don't want to live in that scenario. And God is, when he says, I'll bless you and I'll curse those who curse you, that means somebody spits in your direction, it bounces off the pavement right back in their eye. Nobody even looks at you without me getting on them. That's a big deal. I always think of that. When I read that, I think of Daryl talking about his mother coming out with, I think, some 45 when the neighbor was hitting him, getting ready to uh, abuse him. And his mother came out in her robe with a gun, and as soon as that thing came out, and he saw it, his hands came back. Why? Because that neighbor associated Mama Bear with, there's the blessing of her is following that boy, and I better back off. I'll bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee. Now look at this, in thee... In you, in one person, shall all families of what? Good Lord. He's talking to one human being here, and he's telling him, nobody's going to touch you without me getting on them. And I'm going to bless you. uh, The things are just going to work out for you in life. doesn't mean everything's perfect. It doesn't. But when God's on your side, things go well in the end. It may not look like it for a couple hours, for a few days, but in the end, it's going to turn out for them. And he would bless in him, something that was in him would bless the entire earth. That may be the best single promise that God has ever given to one human being. Now, there's something, why did we come here? Why are we spending so much time on Abraham's promise from God, I thought we were in Esther. Because Mordecai had told his niece that deliverance is an enlargement, it's going to arise. Us Jews, we're going to be saved. Somehow, somewhere. He didn't know exactly how, but he knew somehow. Why? He knew this promise. And what is, what specifically is that promise? To Abraham, when God said, something's coming out of you that's going to bless the whole earth, we learn later that as he starts to have kids, he had Ishmael through his own devices. Then God gave him the miracle of having Isaac. And what did that miracle of him being 100, Sarah being 90, no chance having kids, what did the miracle indicate? That God intended that one. God had a hand Maybe a couple fingers, a wink, wink, a nod, nod in that one because those don't happen on their own. And people, you need to watch out in your life for things like that. 
when God gets involved, take notice. Because that's a specific line, a specific avenue to follow. I need to go that way. You remember when Ishmael and Isaac are playing a little bit and Ishmael's making fun of him in Genesis 21? And it gets Sarah upset. She sees that this Ishmael is making fun of Isaac and she wants that kid gone, Isaac. And it bothers, excuse me, Ishmael. And it bothers Abraham. He loves both of them. But the Lord comes to Abraham and says, you better listen to Sarah in this. Why? Because in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other words, the promise that I gave you about your descendants, that something would come from you that one day would do what? It would bless the whole world. That is specifically now narrowed down. There's a definition given. It has to go through who? From that moment on, what does Abraham know about Isaac? Think he's going to get hit by a truck crossing the street? Think there's any chance the COVID is going to get him? Is there a chance that the dentist might drop an instrument down his throat and can't quite get it and the kid dies right there and the not going to happen. So when God comes to Abraham in the next chapter, chapter 22, and says, I want you to take, Abraham, uh, take Isaac, go up to that mountain that I show you, and kill him. What's the next verse in the Bible say? And early the next morning, Abraham grows up, saddled his donkeys, and took off. How could he do it? We call him father of our faith, a great man of faith, and he was. But how was he? Why was he? Because he knew what God had told him. That's what the entire story of Abraham is about. Anytime you read about Abraham in the New Testament, in Galatians and Romans, it talks about that God came to him, talked to him, and Abraham believed God, and God counted it unto him for righteousness. He believed what he heard. And the New Testament tells us that Abraham, up on that mountain, the reason his muscles contracted and he started with the sword going down into Isaac, he was going to do it. Because he knew in his heart what? That if this kid dies, I don't have a problem. Who has a problem? God's got a problem. He's the one that said, this Messiah, this lineage... Going through Isaac. And Isaac's only, who knows, 13. He hadn't had kids yet. There's no chance. He has to stay alive until this seed line can continue. That's what the Bible teaches us. Now extrapolate that to your life. What has God told you? What do you know for sure? You see, Mordecai did this. He didn't have a lot of specifics. When he sent that message to Esther, he doesn't know if God's going to work through Esther or not. He is encouraging her, uh, jump in and be a part of God's plan. Because we know something about God's plan. All of us Jews, we're going to be saved out of this mess somehow. Because that's the promise that we live with. Let's go back to Esther, chapter 4.
Chapter 4, verse 14, For if you all together hold us thy peace at this time, if you stay where it's comfortable, then the enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Mordecai kind of knows how God works. He's made a promise, and he has to, he's going to somehow protect all of us. It might be at the last moment. It might be a week early. But he's going to protect us. And he says, Sister, I think you need to put yourself in the line of fire. Let God work through you. I think this is huge. She had a choice in this. All of us. This is why I think it's important to know God's plan for the earth. Maybe do we know a little bit about God's plan for your family, for our nation, for, for the church? Because if you know, have some information about that, you can bet your life on it. These people in the Bible did it on every page. Mordecai is asking Esther, you better bet your life. Get on the right side. God's going to protect us. And who knows, sister, maybe you were put here for this specific purpose. See, you dwell on this idea for a while, and what you start to realize, because every time we read our Old Testament, are we not shocked at the amazing miracles done back there? Some guy parting the Red Sea? How'd they have faith to do that? How was Abraham literally willing to kill his own son? How did Noah spend that much time building the ark? Because he received a promise from God that the, the flood's coming. And there's something about that story. We know that there's a guy named Methuselah in that story, and his name means that when he dies, the judgment's coming. God gave those people some portion of his plan that they could rely on. As long as that kid every day is riding his bike up and down the street whistling, howdy do da, everything's fine. That kid gets sick. He starts coughing real bad. They dogpile him and don't you think everybody runs over and get off, get off, get off of him. Trying to keep that kid alive. The plan is associated with his life. And you can work the math. Methuselah, the year he died, the flood came. See, God gave them something to rely on. This promise to the Jewish people, this is in Mordecai's mind. You can see it. And what he's telling his niece is, you'll want to be a part of this. What I get out of this story and, and a lot of stories is, you, you, this is yelling at us, jump in, to be a part of God's plan. He's asking Esther, don't just sit and be comfortable. Don't just sit and watch it happen. For goodness sake, get involved because it is probably the safest place to be. If God is working through your hand and you see it, what, what, what do you think the next time you reach your hand out? See, God did that with Moses. Moses said, how am I going to, if I go back to Pharaoh, how do I know that it's really going to work out for me? What did God tell Moses to do? Take your hand, put it in your shirt, and hide it. And when you pull it out, it was leprous. It's like cancer today. Leprosy had a terrible reputation. And God told him, put it back in there. He pulls it out, and a miracle is now associated with 
when I do what God tells me with this hand, I can do anything. And over the next few years, he would pull all those plagues on Egypt and old Pharaoh. He would part the Red Sea by holding up that rod. He would hold his hands up and they would win the battles as long as he held his hands up. How, would, how did he have faith to do that? Because God had showed him how to be involved in his plan. For Moses, it was always in that right hand. And usually with that staff. You don't see many times where God asked Moses to get all the way out there and start punching somebody necessarily. He had a way for him. And he's asking Esther, you've been put in a certain position. We're not asking you to do some of the things that we're doing, but what you can do is get across that hallway and let the king know what's going on. Verse 16. Esther gives this answer back. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Anytime you read in the Bible about somebody willing to put their life on the line like that, that's important stuff right there. It's a hard place to get to, that you're willing to put your life on the line. But see, this is what I take out of it. What Mordecai wrote down and sending through the messenger back and forth to Esther, that old Mordecai was persuasive. He painted the picture in her head, we're going to win this sucker, and you need to be a part of it. I love that. He changed the world just writing some messages, and he convinced her to put her life on the line. There's some real goings on there. To me, God is touching some hearts. The power of persuasion. It's the power of reaching people deep inside. You can get them. You can move them to do miraculous things. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. They went and they got everybody. And what they do? They fasted and they prayed. If you're ever fasting and praying for something, you need to read stuff like this so you get encouraged. It, it works. When you need something, you don't have time, fast and pray. You get after it. And God shows up. Are there other examples in the Bible of this? Because see what we're working on. How did Abraham... How did he, what was the, the basis of his trust to take Isaac up there to sacrifice him? He was trusting something that God had already told him. Isaac's going to be the guy. Now you get conflicting information and you think, well, if he's going to be the, the guy that all these miraculous kids come through, why does he have to die? And there is confusion sometimes unanswered questions in following the Lord. It's not always going to make sense. So, sometimes it may, may make perfect sense. But sometimes you may be in a position where your choices feel like this doesn't make any sense at all. But what did Abraham rely on? In the end, he chose 
I know that God told me about Isaac. So I don't care if he dies. Basically, what the Bible teaches is Abraham was kind of the first guy to believe in the resurrection. He knew God will raise this boy up. A doting father and his beloved son up on that same mountain that Jesus died on. There's a reason God painted that picture for us. Isaac voluntarily laid down like Jesus did. God was willing to sacrifice his own son. He can see all through time. He knows what's on the other end. But in a, in a sense, Abraham did too. Romans 4 tells us that he was persuaded that what God had told him, he was able to perform. Perform what? Well, that someday Isaac is going to be the miracle child with this lineage. So even if I kill him, God will raise him from the dead. This is why that scene up there on Mount Moriah with Moses, or excuse me, Abraham and Isaac, it's a direct picture of Jesus on the cross. You kind of want to be associated with that event. Abraham was willing to do it. Mordecai is kind of the same way. He knows what God has told his race of people. You're going to be okay. Now, it's going to, from A to Z, it'll work best if you follow me, if you obey me. It's the smoothest path. But I'm going to get this people across the finish line. He knows that. But he is telling Esther, jump in and be God's instrument, his arm. And I really think when I read that now, this makes me think that this is one of the big messages in this. My next thought goes to somebody like David. We all think of that story of David standing before Goliath. And man, what, what a picture that is. Why was David willing and so confident to stand before Goliath? But let's turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17 is David and Goliath. And we're going to jump to chapter 17, verse 37, where David is standing before Saul, and he's asking for permission to go fight Goliath. Nobody else wants to. And he's asking, please, just give me a shot. Verse 37, David said moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will also deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And look how persuasive David was. And Saul said unto David, go and the Lord be with thee. Now Saul clearly sees that, well, the Lord must be with this kid. Why did he think that? Why would anybody think that there was something special about David? Why would they let him go represent the nation? What happened in the previous chapter, chapter 16? Chapter 16. In verse 11. 
And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. God had told Samuel, I got, an, I got the next king. He's in Jesse's house, one of his boys. You go over there and you anoint the one I tell you. He brings all the boys in and God said, No, not him, not him. No, no. And they go through the whole room. None of them. So he turns and tells Jesse, You got any more? He said, Yes, there's one out there feeding the sheep. Verse 13, Then, then Samuel, uh, verse 12, And he sent and brought him in, now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel anoints David. And at that moment, what can everybody in the room know? See, all of this is God's doing. God told Samuel, go there. God directed Samuel's hand, not Eliab, not Nahashu, not the other clowns. Go get David. And when he comes in, God taps him on the shoulder. That's it. And they anoint him. It's God's doing. And God anoints this kid as king. I don't know how old he is. But from that moment forward, it looks like even David has something going on up here. Like, I know I'm not going to die. God has anointed me king. I ain't going anywhere. Because is he king yet? When he stands before Saul to ask to go fight for, against Goliath, is he king there? He's nowhere near king. So what do you think going through David's mind? Why is this kid so confident? Because I know my plan. I know what God has for me, what he has showed me. I am supposed to be king. I ain't dying today. And I'm not dying tomorrow. I'm probably going to have to be king for a while. And then maybe I'll think about, well, maybe there's a grave out there for me someday. Until he's king. Old David knows, let me go. You got nobody wants to go, I'll do it. Let me go fight Goliath. Because there's the knowledge of God's plan. Because God can't lie. It's Abraham's life. It's evident in Mordecai. I think it's in all these people in the Old Testament. About those three Hebrew children that said, we ain't bowing. You throw us in the fire. We ain't bowing. What gave them confidence to do that? Well, one, they were friends with Daniel. And they had seen God work in Daniel's life a lot. And they're thinking God's on our side. And God showed up with them where? In the fire. If you are an instrument of God's hand and you end up in places like the fire, don't worry. God will meet you in there. Turns out to be the safest place in the whole empire. In the furnace. Maybe that's why Mordecai tells her, don't stay in the place of comfort. Don't just stay and think that at this time that you hold your peace. Don't just hold on to your peace. Put yourself in a position where it could, it could look ugly for a while, especially to the rest of the world. They might be, mom and dad might be scared for me, my whole family, but if God's out there, 
I'll be just fine. Look at 1 Samuel here, 16. Verse 13 is where he anoints David. Let's read verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, so everybody could see it. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. You see, from the moment God's plan is put into action, there's something visible on David. I love that. We shouldn't really just blend in. There should be a little something different about us. Now, the next verse. The next verse in your Bible, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So you can see how God pulled it from Saul, and he gave his blessing, put his spirit on David. Verse 15, Saul's servant said unto him, Behold, you've got an evil spirit from the Lord. Verse 16, Let our Lord now command thy servants which are before thee to seek out a man who is cunning player on a harp, and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Sounds like a lot of random stuff, huh? What, ran, random? Who, who plays a harp? We, we, hey, 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 king, we, we know a guy. And it just, quote, so happens. Verse 18, Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning and playing and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto David and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. What's the first thing that happens to David after he is anointed to be king? His next job takes him one step away. See, I I look at that and think, thank you, Lord, (laughs) we're right on track. Now, even if he turned and went in the opposite direction, God knows what he's doing. Look how fast God changes things. But I'm telling you, on the inside of me, I'd be thinking, you better believe it. I am on path. This is what God has for me in my life. The instant God initiated his plan with David, he didn't have to put out a resume to go work for the king. He didn't have to audition. They came looking for him. Now, I'm not against putting your resume out. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with auditioning. That's not what we're saying. We're pointing out that when God gets involved with something, what can happen? They come find me. And when that happens, on some occasion, guess what you should be thinking up here? This is God's hand. And you better jump with both feet, even though there's some danger there. Because Saul, he's kind of a weirdo. And the evil spirit is troubling this guy so much he's almost possessed and he's throwing javelins at David in a little bit. And yet, even as those javelins are flying, what do you think David's thinking? I ain't king yet. As long as he's not king, those javelins have no chance. David spent his life on the run for a while with the king and his whole army chasing this boy. You want God on your side. This is, I, this is so important for young people. Search for the plan of God in your life. 
Because anywhere that you find it, man, there's amazing things that happen on that road. Amazing things. And there's a confidence that comes. You start walking on that road for a while, then you realize that things are kind of going well. Somebody spits in my direction, it bounces off the gravel road and hits them. God has a way of protecting his people. It's what he told Abraham. I'll bless you, buddy. And anybody that even likes you, I'll like them. People that curse you, I'm their enemy. And they won't last till sunset. This is why we read in the Bible about people like Abraham and Mordecai and David and Daniel and Samson. These guys know what God's plan is for their life. And once they know that, they may not have a lot of answers. Abraham didn't have all the answers concerning Ishmael. Is that not evident? He made a mistake there. But he does know somewhere in one of the, in the kids. And when Isaac comes along and God says, In him, in Isaac, shall thy seed be called. Now, whatever I do with this boy, I know where he's ending up. And it gives people the confidence to do miracle things. What does that mean for us? Have you ever read the end of your Bible? kind of works out for us. This whole world is painted in a pretty tough light back there. Should that scare us? Bring it. We know where we're going. We know what God's plan in the end for his church. We are a very special, peculiar group of people in God's eyes. It's, it's amazing when you really start to study it, how God looks at his church. He talks about it as something, I bought that with my son's blood. Think he's going to let something happen to it? Yeah, they, there may be some persecution. Probably going to go after those persecutors too in the end. There's a confidence that comes for the, with the Christian. We have the indwelling of God's Spirit, just like what happened to David there when Saul anointed him. From that moment on, things just, God makes sure. It looks bad here. There may be some javelins. We know where we're going. You will sit on the throne. When David is out there and he's swirling that sling, if that's how it worked, I think David has all the confidence in the world. This wasn't a lucky shot. It wasn't... I'll throw a couple and then I'll run away if I don't hit him? No. whole plan was, it's what he told Saul, this uncircumcised Philistine is dead meat. You give me one shot because God's with me. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would put in each and every one of us a strength, um, that you would put in us a, a confidence, a charge for our life, Help us, Lord, to step in voluntarily to your plan. Help us to engage in our world, in our culture, our society, so that we can be an instrument in your hand. That we would see you working in our life day to day. That we would be encouraged, strengthened by your strength, the power of your might and not our own. That we would not lean on the wisdom of our own understanding, but that we would rely on you, your power, your wisdom, and your might in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.